0: hey family welcome to another edition of cool jazz conversations i'm your host marcella shepard the bass man here on wssb and let me tell you i am beyond excited to be talking to our guest today because this brother happens to be a piece of music history i'm talking about grammy award-winning composer producer keyboardist Please welcome none other than The Godfather, Jeff Lorber to Cool Jazz Conversations. Jeff, how you doing, bro? I'm
1: doing good. You know, we had a few uh, technical issues today, but uh, I think we got them solved.
0: Hey, man, we we are working right on through them, you know. Those kind of technical issues, I, I guess it's kind of like a summation of the last year and a half coming out of 2020 into 2021, right, where any and everything that could go wrong, would go wrong, but, you know, you just kind of push through it and persevere, man. How did you make out during the pandemic?
1: Well, um, I did okay, because, you know, I've been recording at home for a lot of years. I have a really good studio here, and a lot of uh, my musician friends that I work with are the same, and uh, so I was sort of prepared in a way. I, I I have a beautiful studio here that's kind of um, just right for a keyboard player. It's got all kinds of key- nice keyboards. And, um, you know, I miss playing live. We, I've just, I, luckily I've had a chance to play a few gigs live over the last few months. I miss that, but I, I love to be creative in the studio and I had a lot of uh, opportunities about Jeff Lorber Fusion album. And um, and I worked with um, Herb Alpert quite a bit. He's always recording. Nice. He's going strong at 86 years old. Wow. And, um, Norman Brown worked on some tracks for his album. Yeah. Uh, Dave Koz worked on some tracks for his album. So, you know, been kind of busy over here.
0: Well, that's good stuff, man. A great way to take advantage of of the downtime, if you will, that uh so many of us had. But let's let's go back if you will in time. You know, you're a Philly cat. Where exactly did you grow up in Philly? North, right. east, southwest?
1: No- north, like a okay. northern suburb of a place called Cheltenham.
0: Okay, and what was what was the vibe of your neighborhood?
1: Um, well, you know, actually, actually, where I went to high school, it turns out that there's a lot of other musicians that are uh, kind of well known that that were came from my, my neighborhood. Uh, the Brecker Brothers went okay. to, went to went my high school. Michael.
2: Yeah, and yeah. Uh,
1: I don't know if you know uh, Andy Snitzer, who's a younger guy. Oh yeah, and um, so yeah, so you know, when I was when I was junior high or high school uh blood sweat and tears came out on the scenes you know it made me see that somebody from my you know my part of town can become a professional musician and, and get a recording deal and make records and of course he's had an incredible career you know he's won a whole bunch of grammys and you know Barker brothers have, have been very uh successful and um, but uh yeah you know philly was like uh the home of philadelphia international teddy pendergrass and uh gamble and huff great songwriting oh, yeah. team and, and before that actually when i was really little there was uh a record company called cameo parkway okay. that had some great some great stuff like uh chubby checker and the twist and oh, wow. uh i don't know if you've heard this song uh the orlon south street and uh you know i don't know there was just a lot of you know that earlier kind of music but that it was soulful funky music that i really liked and so uh and and, and you know i kind of came up playing in bands playing in, in kind of R&B bands and rock bands and um and i went to berkeley college of music after high school so that was that was really lucky that i kind of found out about that place because berkeley is one of those is one of the few schools that really teach people how to learned skills that work for the modern music business the, mo- the music industry right you know right. at that time most music schools you study you study Bach and Beethoven it's not really relevant to what's happening hmm. um, on the radio but Berkeley was all about what's on the radio and learning how to record and uh, giving you practical sort of like vocational training school for music
0: No, and you, a you lot of a lot of great to... musicians have gone there yeah, but you weren't supposed to be going to Berkeley initially. You were headed to another school, right, out in California.
1: I was. Well, oh, you've done your homework. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. I, I had a really lucky. I had a real lucky um, thing that happened to me. I was all set to go to the brand new. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, Cal Arts school mm-hmm. here, here in, in los in the Los Angeles area, and. Um, and I was driving home from uh, a little ski vacation that I took with a friend of mine, and we hit a really bad snowstorm, and, um, and so I had to get off the road, and we, we ended up going to this resort where the Buddy Rich band was playing. Oh, wow. And there were very few people there because the, the weather was so bad, but they were great. That was at, at the, kind of at the height of Buddy Rich's fame and his band, he had a fantastic band, and I talked to the alto player that was in the band, a guy named Richie Cole, Mm-hmm. And I told him I was going to go to music school and that I was going to Cal Arts. And he said, "Well, you should go to Berkeley." What's that? I didn't know. I had never heard of Berkeley. But I looked wow. into it, and then I realized, yeah, I should go to Berkeley. That's really where I should be going. That's what that's what I'm interested in. So wow. that was like almost like fate putting me in the right direction. It Was really lucky. And then when I got to Berkeley, I got even luckier because what happened was I was practicing in the practice room one day, and I heard. A kid next to me that was just incredible like he was an incredible player and i asked him who he was studying with and he was studying with uh, a teacher named madame shelov and a guy named alex elon hmm. neither of those teachers were teaching at the school but i wanted to sound like this guy so i went out and found those teachers and i studied with them wow. and they were the best the best teachers i ever had madame Shalov was like a classical technique teacher Mm-hmm. And Herbie Hancock and Keith Jarrett and Chick Korea would go and take lessons from her. Uh, uh, and she, she, she was amazing. And this guy, Alex Eland, was a jazz teacher. He, he, he taught jazz like his own way. And both of them were, were very similar, though, in, in the fact that they they kind of both taught things in a very, very step-by-step manner where you really focused on the basics and you learn one thing and you build on that. You know, it's like, I mean, I think most teachers work like that. Most great teachers work like that. Right. And so um, that made a huge difference too. So that was, um, you know, that helped me really get to where I wanted to go a lot. It was great.
0: Now, you just mentioned Herbie and Chick, but, you know, who are some of your major influences that you've had over the years, including the two of
1: them? Well, those two are huge and, and really Herbie in particular. Um, I remember when I heard this album that he made that was called Fat Albert Rotunda. Oh, yes. And that, that really, that album cha- kind of changed my life. That was 1969. Because, um, Yeah, wow, you're you're good. (laughs) Uh, Which is, you know, right, right, I was like a senior in high school in 69, graduated in 70. Um, And uh, yeah, so that was Herbie's first record of kind of doing funky stuff. Before that, you know, he played with Miles Davis, of course, and he made, I guess, maybe two or three, maybe three, three or so solo albums on Blue Note, but they were very jazzy albums. Were incredible albums. I mean, I mean, uh, Maiden Voyage and uh, The Prisoner, and I, I forget uh, the name of all the records. But uh, but this one, the Fat Albert record, was a funky album. Mm-hmm. He was playing Fender Rhodes, and even though he he wasn't really using R and B type of musicians at all, except for Ray Parker played guitar on the album. Right. right. But besides that, he had Joe Henderson, and uh, I think Tootie Heath, and you know they were all jazz guys. And back in, in those days, what was considered funk was more like something which we now call Boogaloo. Okay. Um, it's, it's it's not quite kind of like the funk that we know exactly, right, but it's right. close. Right. It's kind of close, but it's still funky. Yeah, It's still good. And so I heard that, and it's like, that is what I want to do. That's it nice. right there. I want to play like that. I want to play that kind of music, and that's it. And um, so... Uh, but anyway, so yeah, you know, we're talking about Chick and Herbie. And then and then I realized I couldn't really directly like listen to those guys and figure out what they were doing. It was just mm. too it was too advanced. Too complex, yeah. So I had to go back and I had to go back and I had to try to find out well what did they listen to? So I studied the history of jazz piano and I listened to like the main thing that I really, really focused on was which my teacher Alex Elan helped me with was um, the the band that miles davis had when he had uh mostly red garland but also wynton kelly and tommy flanagan playing with him. the band with those those records um cooking with the miles davis quartet Mm -hmm. steaming with the miles davis quartet Mm -hmm. and then and my teacher like he had me write out like the first thing he had me do was just learn how to play a bass line with my left hand the right way that was Mm -hmm. like the very first thing which you wouldn't expect but that's important and, and actually, for me, it really became important because I'm kind of known for my bass lines. I mean, that's a big part of what I do. I use yes, synthesizer. Like mm-hmm. on my new album, it's almost mostly synthesizer bass on, on most of the album. Um, but yeah, he had me transcribe some of the solos. So I just went, really went back into jazz history. And I studied that specifically a lot. But also, I became a big fan of uh, McCoy Tyner, um, Bill Evans, of course. You know i'm sure there's others but that's that's all i I can think of at the moment but uh yeah so i studied the history of jazz piano and then eventually i was able to understand more about what was going on what herbie and chick chick were doing thanks so that's how that's how it worked and just to go
0: back to that that herbie album uh, fat album Rotunda tell me a bedtime story was one of my favorites from that album and I really think that Jeff Lorber yeah. should should remake that tune at some point in time I'm just saying
1: it's funny you should say it's funny you should say that because um, like about two years ago I was on um, I, w- I was doing one of Dave Ca's Cros- 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 cruises we were in Australia. Okay. And Dave is kind of cool because he really likes to try to, you know, think outside the box and do some interesting and unusual things. I, and I forget exactly how it came about, but we decided to do like a whole set of nothing but me playing Herbie Hancock tunes, like wow. my favorite Herbie, Herbie favorites. But, um, uh, you know, but, you know, but yeah, I mean, someday I'd love to get back in. But we did we did some really interesting stuff, like not the kind of like a lot of stuff from the Headhunters album. It's not okay. that easy to play that music because <laughs> that music is sort of very, it's it's very open. It's yeah, very yeah. very open. It's very sort it's sort of abstract. Mm-hmm. There's there's like a lot of improvisations, and all of a sudden out of nowhere there's like accents and there's like yeah. some some crazy stuff that you got to jump on. Right. And um.
0: And a little bit of structure and, in the middle. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, it's not like a normal song where you just play ahead and then you solo, and it's not real easy like that. It's like, right. it's a lot, it's a lot, a lot more complicated. And uh, we were we we're lucky because we got a guy that that charted the stuff out. So nice. you know, he did the hard work of putting it all on paper. So we just had, I mean, even just reading it and, and performing it wasn't easy. But without the charts, it, it would have been impossible. Right. Um, and one thing I didn't try to do. It was uh, that the guys wanted to do, I didn't want to do it. Well, anyway, what it was, was um, the song Actual Proof. Like if you're, if you're a musician and you're a fan of Herbie, you, you got to know about Actual Proof. Actual Proof was from uh, the second, from the Thrust album. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a song too. that was, it was actually a song that was originally, it had a different name, it was a film score that he, Made of of a film called The Spook Who Sat by the Door, changed yes. the music a little bit, yeah. and the version that's on actual proof. That's sort of like, that's sort of like the ultimate Herbie Hancock song for musicians because it's very complicated. It's very very syncopated. The harmonies are really crazy, because that song alone required like so much uh, study. And you know, I just did, I didn't want to do it halfway. I just you know that was just a little bit too much for me to take on to try to learn all the do, do it justice uh because because it's, it's funny because uh like jimmy haslip and i we're, were a lot of times we'll be watching herbie's you know there, there's youtube videos of herbie's shows and we're like and and herbie sort of figured out himself that that is one of his best tunes and he always plays wow. it. he like that's that's part of his concerts all the time now nice and um so, you know, and Herbie's band is sort of changing around. He has different guys playing it. And Jimmy and I will be like, we'll be like, uh, sort of like checking out, like, are these guys playing the right parts? Does this sound as good as the record? <laughs> like, I think this guitar player is playing the wrong thing here. Something you like guess, that. I don't know quality if control. really quite getting that sound that folks. Paul- <laughs>
0: And you know it's funny you mentioned that particular movie so they're actually FX is doing a remake of the spook who sat by the door as a miniseries. And I was wow. actually, yeah, it, part of it. The pilot was being shot in Baltimore a couple of uh, weeks ago, and I was actually on set as an extra for it. And I said, nice. you know what? I said I'd never seen this film, so I went home and I watched it on YouTube because that's the only place you can find it. But the whole thing is there, and I'm listening. And as soon as I heard some of the music, I said, "That's that's Herbie right there." So
1: yeah, I, I got. Man, to- I got a good, I got a good story for you about being an extra. Go okay. So So. Um- in the 80s i was doing i was doing like tons between like 88 and 93 i was doing um a lot of uh, i was really doing session work in l.a with like some of the top t- the, the, the top artists and working on a lot of cool stuff and one of the artists that i that i work with quite a bit was the manhattan transfer mm-hmm. and while i was working with them they got um they got asked to do a coca-cola commercial wow and, and you can actually go online and find, like, if you type in Manhattan Transfer co commercial. So, so at that time, I, like, my specialty was doing everything with a drum machine and sequencers. You know, that was my specialty. Like, now, the music I make now, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't do that. I mean, I do it a little bit of that, but usually I, lo- I have live drums with live musicians. I mean, that's right. the way I like to work now. That's, like, a step up definitely but back then everybody you know sequencers were new that was like a new sound everybody thought that was really cool so i i actually did all the music for this um for this commercial using drum machines and sequencer but then for the for the um for the filming of the commercial they wanted it to be like a big band and they wanted me to be part of the commercial so i can make sure that all the guys looked like they were playing the right stuff (laughs) so um so anyway, somehow, somehow I got asked to like drink some coke and uh be in the com- like really be in the commercial, which means as you I'm sure you know, means being upgraded. Yeah. So if you're upgraded all of a sudden instead of making like not that much money, all of a sudden you you're getting a nice check. That's right. And I even like not only that, but I I had like uh you know, health insurance, what is that? Sag right. after SAG, health yeah. insurance for yep. a couple I, years. I mean, I'm I really SAG got into but- it. And and so there was some um, lady there that was looking for for actors for more like extra work. And I was thinking this extra thing is great. Like, I got it. And she said, do you want to be an extra Because the reason why she wanted me was because at the time that was at a time when everybody was like the knack were really big as a band Mm -hmm. and everybody was wearing short hair. And I still had long hair at the time. So she was looking for guys that had long hair nice so I I ended up being an extra in a bunch of like more commercials and I found out that you don't get I found out the hard way that you don't get upgraded that often no (laughs) (laughs) and uh but anyway I just I just actually one of the uh just briefly I met a girl at one of the um one of one of the commercials that I did that ended up getting married to my old Buddy and bandmate Kenny G. It ended up being Kenny Kenny's wife a, years later, wow. Lindsay Lindy or Lindsay. Anyway, um, but that was interesting. You know, I got to see another side of the of the uh, entertainment business. And I have worked since then. I have worked a bit on some film scores and some stuff for TV, TV and film, which is fun. It's one of the you know one of the main things that musicians do living here in LA. So that's my. St- not too many people have heard that story. That's but, good uh, stuff, that's
0: a cool jazz conversations, <laughs> exclusive man. We love it. We love it. <laughs> Family, if you're just joining us on the line today, is none other than the Godfather himself, Jeff Lorber, hanging out here. Jeff, what was that aha moment, uh, if you will, when you realized that your gift could really take you to places?
1: Um. Wow. Um. Well, I can tell you what was I feel like is my big break. Okay. That that really me on a path to really go places and this is a this is a real weird thing because you wouldn't expect that, you know this would be your big break but um so back in those days it's not like now where you, your computer comes with GarageBand garage and you can you know you got <laughs> as many tracks as you want you can make right. demos and there's and there's nothing to it like back 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 in the 70s which is when i started the early 70s um If you wanted to make like a a a master quality demo you had to get into a recording studio Mm -hmm. or you had to have a bunch of equipment or something one of those two i mean nobody had equipment back then so you had to get into a recording studio and uh, i had a job teaching at this little college i taught a couple because i you know because i went to berkeley uh i taught a jazz lab class and i taught like something called vocal jazz which is was really big in the pacific northwest Mm. um and anyway, one day at the end of the, my Jazz Lab class, one of my students said, hey, we have some uh, studio time at a local recording studio and we're going to record some stuff. Do you want to come and check it out? And I said, yeah, sure. So um, so this was in Vancouver, Washington, which is right across the Columbia River from, from Portland. And we went to this little studio called uh, Ripcord Studio. It was a 16-track studio with... Um, with, with like hard, a lot of hard surfaces and it had a nice uh, echo chamber, which is, you know, back in those days, studios didn't have that much equipment, you know, they didn't have that much effects. It's not like it is now. It's really different. And um, so the band went in there, they were starting to make some music and, I, and they were having some difficulty just hooking it all up, you know, arranging the music. And I just kind of went in there and helped out and uh, and helped them get get the get the thing on the road. And there was an engineer there that noticed that he seemed, it seemed to him, you know, he understood that I knew what I was doing and these, and these other guys didn't. Mm. And he was learning how to engineer. Oh, wow. So after, so after the session was over, he said, Hey, how would you like to come in here with me? And I'm learning how to engineer and you could learn how to record in the studio, in this little studio. Cause I guess he was friends with the owner and he had the ability to do that. And I said, yeah. So that was it. That was my big break. Because wow. after that, um, I was able to make some demos. I sent some demos out. I got a, uh, I ended up getting a recording contract with a small independent label out of New York. And I made two records for them that were, the first of which was pretty successful locally in the Pacific Northwest. Because we were playing like all kinds of gigs in, in um, like Seattle and Corvallis and, Missoula, Montana, we were all over the Pacific Northwest, Spokane, Washington, and, and then because that record did reasonably well, I had a little big bigger budget for the second album, and on the second album, I was able to get Chick Corea and Joe Farrell to get, I used some of that money to hire like these great musicians to nice. just kind of be featured on a couple of tunes on the album. And um, and that got national attention mainly because of that because those guys were at the height of their popularity. Right. And and then and then after that, um, you know, some major labels were interested. Uh, Arista was one of the labels, and at that time they had a they had a great jazz division with the early GRP records, and mm-hmm. um, you know they had Tom Brown and and. Uh, and the Brecker Brothers, you know, they had a Harvey Mason was was another artist on Arista at the time. The Headhunters actually, Herbie's backup band, had a deal with Arista. So, yeah, that so I ended up making six records with Clive Davis at Arista, nice. for like the next the next you know six seven years. And uh, so that's basically it. All it all came from that from that one evening of Number going to a recording. Wow. You know, so, so what I learned from that was you just got to have. You know, if you prepare yourself for what you want to do and you have the skills to take advantage of an opportunity of like a lucky break, you can make you can make something out of it.
0: Stay ready so you don't have to get ready, right?
1: (laughs) Exactly. That's a good that's a good way of, of putting it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so Jeff, you know, you you definitely are one of the the forefathers, uh the godfather as as I like to call you, but you know, one of the pioneers of not only the fusion movement but also the contemporary jazz movement as well. Mm-hmm. What exactly were those sounds birthed out of?
1: Um well, you know, the er- the early Jeff Lorber Fusion uh band was there was so much exciting music happening at the time in the early '70s. There, you know, what Miles was doing, uh, Return to Forever, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Weather Report, all the great music coming out of San Francisco with from Fantasy Records. With you know, they were recording Flora and ARTO and Joe Henderson and to all kinds of great stuff coming out of there. Um, the Crusaders, yeah. Crusaders were a huge. They were a huge. Um, influence and and r b music in general which was mainly you know earth wind of fire was basically running that you know like every tragically every band in rb music (laughs) was trying to be earth wind of fire they weren't earth wind of fire which actually really like in a way the crusaders and earth wind of fire were really important in the sense that um there was a band out of portland called Pleasure. That was signed to Fantasy, and they they, they had a little bit of a Earth Wind and Fire sound, but also they also they were produced by Wayne Henderson of the Crusaders, who 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 discovered them, and uh, they were very talented. They were great. They were a great band. They had the song Glide, that you probably know. I mean, they're mm-hmm. if you listen to their albums, it's just they were way ahead of their time. Well, and I'm yeah. still really good friends with uh, Marlon McLean, the guitar player, okay. and Nate and Nate Phillips, the bass player, and I've worked with them for years. And Dennis Springer, the sax player, he he was the sax player on my album, Water Sign, and he played beautifully on that album. That was sort of my breakthrough album in a way. It had the song Rain Dance, which later became kind of a big hit hip-hop right. anthem that was sampled by yes, a lot of yes. people. We'll come back to that, um, too. And, uh, you know, Tower of Power was another huge influence, like that kind of syncopated sound that those guys were getting, you know, which, you know, it's kind of derived from... Um, you know James Brown and and Sly Stone. I mean, I could go on and about the melting pot of all the incredible music that was happening at the time. Right. But and then and then and but I think what happened was like my band and Spyro Gyra and also the Pat Metheny Group. Those three groups, we were sort of like the next generation of fusion jazz that was more melodic. Right. Like the earlier the earlier groups were more you know avant garde and just like, really. Yeah, very yeah. creative in all kinds of crazy ways, but but these three bands were more like a little closer to um, to instrumental pop music in a way, you know, where, where it was more melodic, uh, it was sounding more like modern R&B records or modern pop records in terms of the engineering and the way the rhythm section sounded, and... Um, kind of a friendlier easy more easy listening way to put it together but still jazzy and still you know creative and 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 adventurous Mm -hmm. and um so yeah so 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 i think that's the big difference is is the focus on um more uh more melody development and uh kind of pop at r&b song form in terms of like sort of instrumental versions of pop or R&B music. And that's the way I look at it. And, you know, later they, much later, they came out with with smooth jazz, which right. didn't exist when right. I was coming out. But that was basically what I was doing. I was doing my own version of smooth jazz in terms of um, just combining those, in, those influences in a way that was, you know, it was really fun as a musician to play music that was harmonically, inst- interesting and had bebop vocabulary in the solos but at the same time melodically was a little easier for the average listener to 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 to, to enjoy and to you know to hear and, and grab onto now, so you, uh, that, that's 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 kind of the way i see it
0: do you prefer the term smooth jazz or contemporary
1: jazz well smooth i don't really like smooth jazz because it because only because um well, I like it and don't like it. I, what I <laughs> what I don't like about it is um, is it sounds like you're saying that it's not that compelling. It's not that interesting. It's right, right. smooth, like it's, it's background music. It. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I don't like it. So that's why I do like contemporary jazz because it's more. That's that's a better description of what I'm doing, which is I'm taking all those influences of all the way back to to you know Bud Powell and and and. Uh, you know, you know, early Miles Davis and R&B and whatever else, whatever else is happening. Um, and, you know, and making it contemporary, taking jazz into a new place. You know, it's not Bebop because that's old fashioned jazz. That's, so you can't call it that. Right. Um, it's contemporary jazz. But But anyway, the good thing about smooth jazz is that so it became a brand name for a radio format, basically. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a radio for, format that was very successful for many years and not quite as successful now, but still, you know, still there. And, um, and I think it, it was a way for a, lot of, for a lot of people that loved R&B music, like after the R&B stations turned into hip-hop stations, like, man, where can I find that, that sound that's <laughs> not, it's not rap music, but it right. has like some nice harmonies and some nice funky grooves. So those people that were for, sort of orphaned from radio where they couldn't get what they used to listen to, they migrated to the smooth jazz format. So the thing that's good about it is that it's a, that it was successful, and it's a way to kind of just let people know, hey, this is the kind of music that a lot of people like, and if you want to, you know, if if, if if that's what, if you like that stuff, then, you know, it's it's just a way of letting people get, it, of, of promoting and marketing and and, getting the word out that you're making instrumental music that you that people that like that can find, you know, because otherwise you got to have a category to, to let people know what's what's happening. Right, right. You know, that's now, the way the world works.
0: For me, I don't want to say that I hate the term smooth. I dislike the term smooth. And so I mm-hmm. prefer contemporary as well. Yeah, However, I, I'm with you. However, there you. are some artists Who I don't like to put into the contemporary uh, side of the spectrum. You know, they really do sound like smooth jazz artists, you know, so there, there is a difference. Yeah between the two, but you know, you, my brother are definitely on the contemporary side. (laughs) If you are just joining us, we are talking to the Godfather keyboardist, Grammy award winning artist, none other than Jeff Lorber. This is a man whose production credits, I mean, they go long and wide from Marion Meadows, Herb Albert, DeBarge, Ariana Grande, Jeremiah, uh, Mariah Carey, Hootie and the Blowfish. And that list just goes on and on
1: and on. When you say Debarge, I mean that's one of my all-time favorite is uh, it? you know artists that I ever work with. Yeah, he's, you know, he's just a genius. You know, he's incredible. He can sit down at the piano and he writes all those those songs, you know. Yeah. He just sits there and he plays them and he writes them and the harmonies are incredible. Yeah. And if you're if you're hanging out with him, it's like wait wait a minute, oh what 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 is that? Hold on. Hold on, what is that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's doing, but it sounds amazing and and uh I mean, in a way, he's kind of like our modern Beethoven because the songs harmonically are so rich and and they're so interesting wow. in the kind of in, in the kind of uh, you, you know uh, modulations Wait, and the way he voice leads and the melodies and I mean, as a singer, he's like forget about forget about his piano playing and songwriting. His singing is like just super unbelievably incredible. Most definitely. So, so yeah so the chance the the fact that i had a chance to work on some of his his records um and i can still listen to those songs um and hear my my little um you know solos or keyboard parts playing with him you know actually one of his his records was a huge uh break for me which was like right after i moved to la in uh i think it was 1980 sounds about right You've heard of a drummer named John Robinson. He's one of the top drummers in the studio business here in town. Yes, sir. He played with Rufus for many years, and then he kind of Mm -hmm. just moved to L.A. and worked with Quincy Jones. And, you know, he's like the most recorded drummer, I think, ever. But I became friends with him, and he recommended me for some gigs. And one of the very first gigs he recommended me for was working with Richard Perry on uh, a new DeBarge track that was being recorded for, for a film. Okay. And the film was like some kind of kung fu film or something like that. Last Dragon. And it, right. <laughs> <laughs> and and Richard asked me to do the arrangement for this for the song, so I listened, I got the cassette, and um, and it, and it said the writer was Diane Warren. So you probably know Diane Warren. Like at this point, she's you know, probably the the biggest name in in songwriting ever like one of for for a woman like one of the best ever. I mean, amazing. she's had an incredible career, but this was like one of her first songs that she ever wrote oh, wow. that ever came out. Okay. I think before that, she'd only had like one or two other things that anybody had heard. She was just getting started. And I heard this. I, I hadn't met her yet. And I heard this cassette. And it's like, wow, this is really good. Because her demo was actually not that far off from the way the record sounded. It was a very good demo, like all the important parts, a lot of the important parts that were, that were on the, the record. Um, and I'm talking about the rhythm of the night. I, I guess okay. I didn't say that yet. Yeah, do, do that. nice, nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, so it's a great song and it's like, wow, this is great. And, um, this must be, I was thinking like, uh, this must be like a middle-aged writer that's been doing this for a long time because it's so. It's such a good song. It's like somebody that really has honed their craft and has been working on this stuff for years, like somebody like Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann or Carole King or one of those really? kind of writers. That, that's what I was thinking. Oh, and then I met she- her and she, she's like 19 or 20 or something oh, like that. Oh my gosh, wow. <laughs> okay, so you're not one of these b- brill-building writers, I guess. <laughs> But um, and I, I ended up doing her demos for her for about a year. We became good friends. We're still friends. Nice. Um, but yeah, so so we went into the studio and we had a great band. We had John Robinson on drums. We had um, Paul Jackson Jr. on guitar. So Paul and I go back a long ways, as you yeah, can tell. Yeah, he's the goat. And um, and then on bass was um, Abel Laboreal, who who I actually knew from Berkeley. I mean, I didn't know him. But he was a little older than me when I went to Berkeley, and he was like, he was at Berkeley. He was one of the stars at Berkeley. Like he was, wow. he was in some group there that was already very kind of popular within the school. Uh, so yeah, so, so I think that was the, that was that was the group, and uh, and we were, and it and it was just one of those days in the studio. Sometimes you walk into the studio and you just feel this vibe, like something really good is going to happen what today. Happened. Yeah, it's like it's like. You don't know why or how you just there's like there's like the light in the room or something's vibrating or something. I don't know how to explain it, but you just walk in and everybody's in a good mood and everybody's ready to really create and do a really great job. And um, so, yeah, so, so that was a really nice way for me to start off my career as a studio musician in L.A. was to arrange a song that became a big hit. And I think to this day, out of all the songs that Diane's written, that's like. Either her biggest or one of her biggest hits she's ever had. Nice, and it still it still gets played. I still hear it.
0: It does, um, yeah. And I love the fact that you said that you listen to you know older albums of yours. You know, not not a lot of artists still do that. You know, listen to to things uh, from yesteryear out of their catalog. So yeah. It's, it's well, great.
1: it's it's good to. I think it's good to listen to to. You know, to to kind of with the with the benefit of time to look back and to really see what holds up and what doesn't, right. because it gives it gives you like a better uh, idea of, of where things really sit. Like, is is this really good or not? Because with 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 added time, you get you get to really see things as they are and and how good they are. You know, some things. You know, oh, you know, another artist that I worked with back in those days. It was one of my all-time favorite favorites, and I got to. I got to work with them even uh, much more than uh, L. DeBarge. I, I unfortunately I only got to work with him on a few, on a, maybe two or three records. But I worked with Renee and Angela oh, on a of bunch it. of their albums. Oh, which songs
0: in particular?
1: Um, your
0: smile by Chance.
1: Yes. Ah, yes. Ah, damn, are you serious? Actually, I got a good story for you about your smile. So so there's a there's a guitar player from new york named paul pesco he played with a group the system and i and i'm friends with the guys from the system okay and at the time and he 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 worked on madonna's first album he ended up working with madonna on and off over the years and madonna had come out to la from new york she didn't know how to drive and she was getting ready to go on her first tour and paul came out and he was living in my house okay and um And so Madonna was calling the house all the time because she needed Paul to come like, to like borrow my van and drive her around Madonna was
0: calling your house all the time.
1: (laughs) Did (laughs) you hear how casually
0: he said that? Yeah, Madonna was calling my house all the time.
1: Well, well, to to, to talk to Paul, you know, um, but anyway, so Paul was basically, he was sort of homeless and just hanging out in LA. So one day I had this session with Renee and Angela and, um, and I, and I said, hey, Paul, man, I want you to help me carry all this, these keyboards in my band to Renee and Angela's house, because I got this session. So he helped me carry all the stuff over there. We set it up, and then he just went to sleep on the couch in the other room. Wow. You know? And so we were working on Your Smile, which is, like, incredible. Incredible song. Incredible song. And somehow, um, in the middle, like, while we were working on it, um... You know we were t- somehow the idea of guitar parts came up mm. and um uh, and i said well you know hey like the guy that came over with me is a really good guitar player that's sleeping on your couch over there you know <laughs> you should have <laughs> him play guitar and the guitar part on that song it's ju- it's just basically one note over and over again ba-ba, 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 ba-ba. but if you listen to that song that guitar part makes that song happen that's like the key part. It's just it just really holds it all together, and I mean it's a very simple part, but it's perfect. And uh, Paul just happened to be, you know, crashed out on the couch over there. Oh my God! And uh, yeah, but you know, but though, but Renee and Angela don't get the I don't think they get the, um, you know, the respect they deserve or the, or the accolades they deserve because they they were they were just wonderful. You know, they, they were. were ahead of their time. And they were both keyboard players. I, I think Angela was really, she was really like the main keyboard player. She was, she would, she could really. I mean, was from my experience, she's the one that sat down and played stuff and showed me what they what they were doing. And Renee, Renee never sat down to. to I mean, I think he can play, but Angela was always the one that sat down to play. Uh, and then actually, after after the two the two of them split up, I continued to work with her and work with with her. Uh, on a bunch of Isley Brothers records too, okay. like the, yeah. the the Smooth sailing album. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but you were talking about um, what records did I play on? Uh, so what, what was that called? Streetcar named Desire was that that album that that your smile yes. was on? So yeah, uh, well save your love for number one. That was one that I that I played on. Nice. With uh, was that Cool Mod or or Big Daddy Kane or somebody like that? did the rap on that the old school rap I think it was save, on, save your love for number one y'all <laughs> uh, somebody like that Oh, that's man. a great that's a great song that's a great song and um, and also I'll be good I did the bass line to I'll, I'll you know really? I'll be good yeah that's a that's a uh, okay yeah Prophet 5 bass <laughs> nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, that's classic, but man. But my
1: first love, my first love. Oh yeah. And and um, yeah, that's a great song.
0: Matt, works on you, that. The keys on you, the solo on that. I remember that. That's do, my do, solo. Do, that's my solo, man. Man. <laughs> that's man. my
1: solo. Thank man. you. <laughs> Golly,
0: are you serious? Wow.
1: And then I, and then I worked with them. You know, they produced stuff for their first Janet Jackson album too. Okay. And that was that was good too. Um, Young Love was the name of the song, I think, from, on the first Janet Jackson. People weren't, didn't really know about Janet Jackson when she put her first album first out. I don't right, think. right.
0: Yeah, she was. They, they
1: didn't. It, I think the second album was the one with Jamela Lewis or something yeah. like that. And yeah. then all of a sudden, everybody yeah. knew who Janet Jackson was. But that that that, was, that song, Young Young Love, from her first album, check check it out, it's good. Wow. And, uh, and I think they worked on the first Layla Hathaway album, too, But and I, I think I worked on that. I'm not sure if I worked on it with
0: Gerald Angela. Albright. Gerald Albright produced some stuff on that album, I know, for sure. Really? On Layla Hathaway's album?
1: The first album?
0: Her first album, because that was like 1989. Um, Eighty nine. That's the album that has. That's where she originally did. I'm coming back. Um, gosh, what else is on that? Um, something in common is on there.
1: All right. Well, we're gonna have to talk a little bit more about this. <laughs> I gotta do some research, and I'll let you know <laughs> what's on. But, but when I when I when I worked on her first album, she was still a student. At, she was a student at Berkeley. Right. She was still going to Berkeley then. Yeah. And um. I think there were a couple of different producers on it, but I worked on a couple songs on that. Okay. And, there, and that was like one of the, one of the songs, whatever, whatever song that was, I can't think of it now, but uh, it's, it's also one of my real favorite songs. I don't know if it was like something that became much of a hit or anything, but uh, anyway, but there were a lot of projects like that. I worked with Robert Brookins. I worked, I mean, I worked, you know, and then actually, then I started working with Louis Silas. It was fun stuff, man. It was, you know, it's fun to be a studio musician and work on all kinds of records. You learn a lot. Um, we even worked on, um, because he was at, Louisville was at MCA, and U2, you know, was at MCA too. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jimmy Iovine was over there. And so we worked on a U2 album. Wow. um doing, doing remixes. And... Um, and then all of a sudden we started getting some rock not that much but a couple of rock rock bands wanted us to cuz you know these bands they wanted to have their music on there were some new formats that were like called hot chr or something like that mm-hmm. where they played more dance music kind of right. kind of like power 106 kind of stuff but which is more dance hip hop i don't know but um, so if you if you could make a version of the song that had the stuff that those stations were looking for you can get a lot more listeners, and you could really boost your sales. Right. And so a lot of a lot of record companies were interested in doing that. So we were we were busy doing that too.
0: Man, you I mean Jeff, you've had your hand in all genres out there, <laughs> you, you know, from rock to jazz to fusion, uh, R and B, of course, hip hop. You know, which we haven't even really touched on. But talk about the first time that you heard. Your song "Rain Dance" being sampled in a song with uh, Notorious B.I.G. And, right. and 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 uh, Junior Mafia, if you will. Tell us about that.
1: Well, the, well, the weird thing is, like, a lot of times they'll call you up, and I, I had a publishing deal with um, what what now is Sony Publishing. It, it's kind of been through a few different companies over the years, but um, you know, usually if. If something was being sampled, they'd call me up and let me know about it and like ask me if it's OK. And uh, But this was a case where they didn't do that. And I was just <sighs> driving in my car here in, uh, in LA. I was driving back from the gym one morning early. And I just thought, hey, I wonder if I'll see what's happening at Power 106 and see what's going on. And they were playing Crush on You by Notorious Big and Lil' Kim. And it's like, huh? What's that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's my song. <laughs> And I, I just about got into a car wreck, actually. Oh, my gosh. Uh Because I was, you know, I wasn't, like, really, pay, for a minute, I wasn't paying attention to where I was driving to, so I pulled over. But, um, you know, I mean, yeah, that was the first one. And uh, it turned out that they had cleared it. You know, everything was cool. I mean, at some point, most of the major labels, if, you know, they know that if you don't clear stuff, that it's it gets worse it's for you later make, on. Yeah, it's going to come back. Yeah, so they usually much. have somebody there that's paying attention to make sure that they're covered right. although not always but most of the time yeah. um but um you know, but yeah but that started a whole thing of um you know erica badu kind of jammed on it on on her live album and you know you mentioned a bunch of other a, a bunch of other people jeremiah and you know i think mariah carey had yeah. she had a single a couple of years years ago called ah no no that used it and um so that's been—it's just been great because all of a sudden this song that came out in 1980, it, you know, it had a nice—that was on my Water Sign album and that did pretty well back then. But it all of a sudden, it's still relevant, and a whole new generation or generations, plural, now I guess, yeah. of music fans get to hear <laughs> get right. to hear my music. Right. In a different context, so and it's a whole it, it's
0: great. list of of tunes. You know, Black Ice, Magic Lady, Catherine Curtains, Night Love. You know, yeah, it's... Night
1: Love is Night Love is is one that's really been used. Um, Jay Z used that, mm. and uh, uh, Brian McKnight, I think.
0: While they used it as well. Yeah, uh-huh. so this new generation, they're very savvy. And not only do they listen to what they listen to, but they want to go that extra mile to figure out, well, whose sample was this? How was this made? And so there's a whole nother opportunity for folks to uh, discover and or rediscover the hit maker himself, Jeff Lorber, for sure.
1: I mean, you know, the way records were made back then, you know, we were so fortunate because you know, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have, you know, now everybody's so distracted. They're looking at their phone and they're looking at their, you know, everybody's distracted. Like back then, the entertainment was just movies, books, you know, TV or records. Ready, and yeah. records, yeah. record was a big, music was a big bigger piece of the entertainment pie that mm-hmm. people were really invested in. And so because of that, there were a lot of record companies that were, were making money and they were supporting jazz. All the major labels had jazz divisions. And, um, and and you know, they, like a label, like Electra would have the Eagles and they would sell like 30 million Eagles records. That would fund everything for a couple of years. They could do whatever they wanted to try to make great records with other, you know, styles of music or other artists. And, um, so the way records were made by back then, they were made on tape. People had budgets, to hire all kinds of musicians, and there's just there's a certain kind of quality that went into those records that you don't get now as much. I mean, it still exists. Like I was talking about cutting uh, Rhythm of the Night with that rhythm section. I mean, that still happens where people go into a, in, into a studio and we cut everything live with a rhythm section, but it's it's much more rare. Right. And it's that's sort of a much more extravagant way to record. From a modern standpoint, I mean, right. most of the big hits that you that you hear now are just a guy with a computer that drum programming with, yeah. with Logic, and and he just puts a hi hat pattern, a kick drum, and a couple other little parts, and somebody raps on it, and it's a rap. That's it. <laughs>
0: Easy bake oven, put it in. So,
1: <laughs> I think the ultimate um, incredible like team of musicians from that era is when you look at Quincy Jones and the records that he made. And he had, he had just so many brilliant collaborators like Lewis Johnson and and Jerry Hay and da Costa and Greg Fillingains and John Robinson and yeah. all the great background singers he had and the, you know, the way he would arrange for strings. And he'd have all these geniuses. And, you know, Rod Temperton writing music for you, writing songs, B, you man. know, he just had the A-team on every level, every, Yes. And, and then he had just his way of putting it together to make it perfect and make it sound amazing. I mean, the thing that really impressed me about Quincy Jones the most was In later years, you know, he continued to make records with different people and they're still really, really good. You listen to them, they still sound sort of cinematic in terms of how wide the stereo field is and how beautiful everything's arranged. And just sonically, it just sounds incredible. And so it's obviously him. It's not it's not just his collaborators because he he's able to find it. But, but still, like those, those records that he made back, back in the days with, you know, Michael Jackson and George Benson and all, all the different people, you know, the, he, he, he produced a, a great um, uh, Chuck O'Connor Rufus record. Um, yeah. You know, he just had these great collaborators and, and the, the goal was to make great music. And and they they weren't worry, worrying about about the budget, you know. The record companies would support stuff if they thought they were gonna, something good was going to come out of it. They would support it. They would right. they wouldn't stress that much about you know hiring people, and so that anyway that's what makes those older records so attractive to rappers because they hear that, right. you know, they listen to that, they hear all that. They just that quality
0: is there, yeah. You know,
1: because so, yeah. it's hard it's hard to create that. Like nowadays, it's hard to create it.
0: Right. So. Well, we've been talking about all of these different albums, but let's talk about the album that matters the most right now. And that is your brand new album for the Shanaki label, uh, right. uh, which is Space Time. Tell us all about yes. it, man. You're back together again with the band.
1: Right. Well, um, so, so the guys that I've been working with, the rhythm section that I've been working with for about 10 years now is basically Jimmy Haslip, who co-produces and plays bass. Great bass player. We've been playing together live a lot. And, and um, Gary Novak on drums, who uh, does play with me live too, but uh, mostly in the studio. You know, over the last few years, he's been kind of busy doing other things, so I'm not always able to, to get him live. But basically, that's the, that's the solid group I had. On the last couple of records, I worked with a guy named Andy Schnitzer, who's a sax player mm-hmm. who, who was playing with Paul Simon. Now he's playing with Chris Bodie um but this time i decided to go in a different direction i was able to get bob mincer on sax from the yellow jackets he's playing on four tracks uh michael landau who's a terrific uh guitarist that actually lives really close by me here uh been playing for years in james taylor's band but he's featured on three tracks i got um hubert laws who of course yeah, everybody knows is like fun. the world's greatest greatest um, jazz flute player. And I, I wrote a song for Chick because, you know, of course, I was so sorry that Chick Korea passed away. And Hubert collaborated with Chick a lot. So I just figured it would be great if I could get Hubert to, to um, play on it, which I was very lucky to get him. And, um, and another, another part of the, the mix is a guy that's not as well known. His name is David Mann. He's out of New York and he's a horn arranger. And he's, he's, and he's also a songwriter, producer, engineer, all at a very high level. And uh, so he contributed a lot with his horn arrangements and he's featured on the song Memorex playing a um, uh, tenor sax solo and playing the melody. And I think that, I think that's most of everybody that I can pick up on the record. Paul Jackson Jr. Uh, plays on, on some no, tunes and I'm playing no guitar No longer too. on
0: the couch. No no longer on the couch.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not asleep, no. Yeah. Um yeah, so that's another thing I really have fun with, is playing guitar. Um, nice. And, um, you know, I'm not as good as Paul, but uh, I, I can play some simple stuff and kind of get it down. So so it, it's just it's, it's a lot of fun for me, because it's, it's sort of like I know what's going on with the piano, but I'm not really as... I don't quite know where everything is on the guitar. Right. So when I can make music, it's more of like just fun, because I don't know what I'm doing. Right, you're, you're down, you, that head is down, <laughs> and you're
0: watching everything that's going on. <laughs> No, that's a beautiful so, thing. Sometimes
1: man. I know I got to play like a certain chord and then I have to like look at the piano. I'd say like, I need these notes. Like, where are they on the fretboard? I don't know. I have to, it yeah. takes me like five minutes to figure out you got to prepare for forward, it. I
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I, I really hate to bring this to an end, Jeff, because we yeah. had one well, incredible really fun conversation. To talk to man, yeah. yes. The pleasure is all mine. He has a brand new album. It is on the Shauna recording label, and it is out now. You've got to check it out. You've got to request it as well. Uh, that album is available to you, and uh, it is called Space Time, in which he just told you all the incredible people that are on there. Jeff, what's your... Your social media or website, so that folks can continue to keep in
1: contact. Um, I have a website, uh, Lorber.com, com, which um, the gigs that are coming up are, are, are going to be there. Nice. Um, and then social media wise, I'm on um, Instagram, basically. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm I have a I have a uh, Facebook account, but I don't. The only reason why I go to Facebook is because I want to see. My friend Marlon McLean has something called Funky Fridays, where he's playing guitar parts. Oh, nice. And I want to cop, I want to cop Marlins guitar parts, but besides that, <laughs> I'm on Facebook. <laughs> uh,
0: you're on Instagram. All
1: right. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm in. I'm on, on Instagram. Uh, it's, it's just Jeff Dash Lorber, I think something like that. Okay. I think that's it. Jeff or dash, lorber Or not Dash, but under underscore. underscore.
0: Got it. Well, good stuff, family. Do check it out. Well, brother, thank you right. again for coming and hanging out with us here My on pleasure Conversations. Yes, My family, pleasure. that is going to put a wrap on this edition. Uh, this is a, a production of TVM Productions broadcast on its home of WSSB 90.3 in South Carolina at South Carolina State University. Uh, you can catch the podcast of this on iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio. You can talk to Alexa, Amazon Music, Player FM, Google Podcasts, podcast pretty much anywhere that you listen to podcasts. It's going to come get you. It's coming at yeah, you. It's coming to get you, yes. <laughs> and you can also check it out at cooljazzconversations.podbean.com. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Cool Jazz Conversations. Uh, my name is Marcela Chapard, the bass man, and we will talk to you next time right here on Cool Jazz Conversations.